Welcome to the Satellite and New Space Matters podcast, a series of interviews with key leaders throughout the industry, all brought to you by the Satellite and New Space team at NUCO, a specialist global recruitment and executive search firm. Welcome to the Satellite and New Space Matters podcast. Your hosts today are myself, Andrew Bull, Senior Consultant, and Annie Savage, Associate Consultant, both from NUCO's Satellite and New Space team. And today we're delighted to be joined by Greg Daphne, CEO of Gapsat. Um, so Greg is a well-known face in the industry. Um, previously, he co-founded Asia Broadcast Satellites and is currently the president of the Asia Pacific Satellite Communications Council. He's also now the CEO of Gapsat, uh, an innovative startup in the satellite industry, providing satellite operators in-orbit satellites for lease in their times of need. Usually, this is until they can build their own custom uh, satellite, but also providing additional capacity where needed uh, after launch or in-orbit failure or to protect ITU filings. Greg, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Andrew, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Not a problem. Well, look, let's get straight into it. To get us started, we always like to ask the same question. How did you first get into the satellite industry? You know, that's a good question, Andrew. And I have to say that I have no idea. Now, um, <laughs> to be honest with you, um, years ago, I was a television and film producer. I actually earned a living in New York uh, doing television, producing television commercials. And I thought someday I would break my break into a career in either Hollywood or some kind of a uh, alternative um, creative process. And I never really got out of the, the uh, wheel of producing literally great TV commercials um, and realized that really what I wanted to do was um, change the world and that I probably wasn't going to successfully do that with the career track that I was on. So I came up with this idea, and I don't know what the specific inspiration was, but I was convinced that I might um, have the best and significant impact if I could not go into politics, because there, there's too much pandering. And as we've seen recently, um, and this will date our podcast, the insanity of, of attempting to become Speaker of the House in the United States, Congress, um, and selling your soul and so forth. The, um, I, I thought that it would be much more sort of my style to convince a small group of people who would be instrumental in changing the policies. And I thought that those people would be the nine justices of the US Supreme Court. So I decided, crazy as it sounds, to go to law school, become a lawyer, and then argue the great cases of, uh, of, of the future, basically. Um, unfortunately, I discovered my first year of law school, the deuces are wild. There's a, a clause in the US <laughs> Constitution called the Commerce Clause. And instead of just simply saying that we have principles of, oops, um, principles that dictate, um, and they're in, inviolate principles that dictate what can and can't be done, there's a rule that, that basically says that anything that impacts domestic or interstate or international commerce, con Congress can do just about anything. Um, that's why I say deuces are wild. There's no principles. Mm -hmm. um, and I realized that, that when you take a look at decisions and, and last year was a perfect year seeing a flip-flop on the most you know, important piece of, of, uh, of uh, Supreme Court decision-making in, in half a century with the reversal of Roe v. Wade that 
you really can't, even with the best and most intelligent arguments, be convincing uh, if the court is inclined not to go that direction. So uh, to make a long story short, I kind of then struggled with what am I going to do with this law degree I'm working towards? And it happened, I was, uh, I was going to Boston University School of Law, and I got onto the International Law Journal. And I, the most interesting uh, article they gave us choices for an article we could we could work on over a period of a year or so. Um, was a was the subject matter was the um, change in the in the rules concerning the regulation of international telecommunications by the FCC. There was a new section of the Communications Act that Congress had just uh, implemented, and I found this to be fascinating, um, and realized that that when I was looking at career opportunities, I realized that. Most of the jobs in the communication industry were representing, and they still are, but to a lesser degree perhaps, were representing um, established, successful, incumbent actors. Companies that, in, in, when I was back um, you know, making these decisions, they were actual monopolies that had yeah. um, either de jour or de facto monopolies like AT&T that had control of the market. And I knew I could never work for that kind of a company because it wasn't my style and they wouldn't want me. Um, and it was something that wouldn't inspire me anyway. But what was taking place, and, and this story goes somewhere, what was taking place um, was the development of alternative competitive carriers. Um, and I said, hey, that's something that appeals to me that I'm a natural for. Um, I'm a bit of an iconoclast in my own thinking and joining a, a startup that's going up against David versus Goliath was really appealing to me. And when I started getting deeper into the process, I realized that the hottest area was just beginning to break because AT&T by then had already been broken up and there were, you know, there were alternatives, MCI and Sprint and others. And then there was local uh, uh, competition in the US. But the area where there was the least amount of competition, it was just beginning its earliest days to develop was satellite communications. And satellite um, had the, an additional appeal for me, which is that there's something basically um, almost without limits about space, the you know, next frontier, the, or the final frontier, in that it's, if you think of like pirate radio, the fact is once you have a transmitter in outer space, you can do almost anything you want and, and, and communications knows no national boundaries, um, which to me was exhilarating. And I thought space beyond the very specifics of satellite communications was an area that I, we all dream about, you know, as little kids becoming astronauts and so forth and, and you know, watching rockets go up. And I, I'm a sci-fi enthusiast. So, I mean, to me, I didn't expect that I'm going to go explore the galaxy because it's a little early uh, and, and earlier then for that process. Um, and I wear glasses so I can never become a pilot, um, a commercial pilot. But I thought <laughs> getting into this industry is almost without limits. And the fact of the matter is that since I wanted to do a lot of things in my life, I thought, what, where can you go? What, what can you do? that entails being kind of at the, the interstices, the meeting point of multiple industries and processes and movements. And, and it's the communications industry writ large and satellites became, I don't wanna say my obsession, became my dream. 
And I got very lucky that I was able to pursue that dream, get a job as a communications lawyer in Washington, D.C., where regulatory legal kind of stuff is done um, in the U.S. And then I had the good fortune of two things happening. One, I happened to work with a couple of young lawyers there who had clients that were making major kinds of advances in satellite communications and the changes in the regulatory regimes that constrain and control how those processes work. And I got into the middle of that right up front. And then I actually, I left to go work for a while um, for the US government doing policy, starting out doing international satellite policy. And I got to see it at the you know, 50,000 foot level. Um, and I've never stopped to look back until now. <laughs> and the rest and the rest is history, as, the uh, as is they history. say. <laughs> well, look, uh, you know, really, really interesting there in, in kind of how you got your start in the industry. <laughs> um, staying in the past for, for a little bit longer, you know, as we've mentioned, you've had a pretty illustrious career, co-founding one of the most successful, I think it's fair to say, regional operators out there, heading up industry associations and now obviously founding an elite GAPSAT. Um, We'd love to hear from you what, what you think is your proudest achievement in, in that career. Mm. Well, okay. So um, to, I think to, to be kind of broadly retrospective in, in, in thinking about this, um, I, as I said, I was working for the US government um, and I really went to, to work there for six months just to get the experience to see how those government bureaucrats think, because let's face it, they have so much control over our lives. And it turned out that it was an amazingly creative process. I mean, it was completely unexpected. I thought it was gonna be a lot of drudgery and it turned out to be uh, cutting edge, exciting stuff and we were changing the world. But at some point I kind of hit the wall. Um, I, I stayed for more than six months. In fact, I stayed for five years in one day. But um, what happened was, sort of late in the process of creating uh, international policy with focus on satellite policy, I made some powerful um, enemies because one of the things I worked on um, was the liberalization of what was then the dominant international satellite paradigm, which were intergovernmental treaty or intergovernmental treaty organizations led by um, Intelsat, but also in Marsat and Utilsat and so forth. Um, and we in the US government had an oversight over the US entity, which was the um, investor in uh, both Intelsat and in Marsat, a company called Comsat, which was later bought by Lockheed Martin, which is ironic because I ultimately went to work for Lockheed Martin on what became ABS, but maybe we'll get into that later. Um, and I was a strong proponent that we should liberalize the, um, the opportunity for private enterprise in space, meaning that we should take the shackles off of these private companies that wanted to be able to, to provide services and in the process compete with the incumbent global monopolists that actually had legal protections that, that kept them, um, kept new entrants from being even allowed to provide services. Crazy stuff in retrospect, um, but, but at the time it was viewed as critical in order to protect these, these sacred international organizations for the good of the uh, unserved or underserved 
uh, parts of the world. Um, I don't think it really worked that way, but I was a, I was a um, aggressively um, forceful advocate on behalf of, of liberalization, um, both within the international organizations and within the US policy establishment. And as a consequence, ComSat actually came after me and basically went to my boss's boss, the Secretary of Commerce, to try to get me taken off their case, so to speak. Um, <laughs> I don't know if they wanted me fired precisely, but the bottom line was that the political pressure they were able to put um, to employ was such that I was told that I should look to do other international policy outside of the satellite arena, at which time, uh, the Deus Ex Machina took place in my life, where uh, Rene Anselmo, who was the founder of the first private uh, global international satellite company, competitor to Intelsat, a company called Pan Amsat. He um, just, I think coincidentally, came and made me an offer to, to come and work for him because he was creating this, as I say, global international satellite system at the time, he had one satellite, as one, which was in the Atlantic Ocean region, serving Latin America and transoceanic between the, uh, the Americas and Europe. Um, and he wanted to go global and he needed help. And so he provided me an opportunity for a, not just a graceful exit, but he convinced me that I had done all I could do as a policymaker to change the way the, uh, the industry operated, that it was time to move into the world itself, move out of the citadel and stop making policy, but actually providing the, the structure and the services that would, would create this competition in the real world. Um, and I thought, wow, this is a dream come true. And, then, and I did, I left out. So my proudest, uh, my proudest uh, moment there was, leaving what was a really exciting job to join the, the, the on the ground, boots on the ground, um, fight for competition and for a change in the way that the paradigm was, was um, operating. Um, and just to give you one little taste of, of what they offered that Intelsat didn't offer on a practical level was Intelsat had developed as a system with relatively low power satellites requiring very large earth stations. If you remember, uh, you may have seen, if you drive around the world, fly around the world, but earth stations that are literally 30 meters in size, those are Intelsat standard A's. And they were, you required really, really big dishes on the ground because you had to be able to have a lot of power to be able to hear and communicate to the satellite. He used the technology. He was not a developer of the technology. He was not Elon Musk, but he, he was able to harness the power of the satellites that were being used for domestic services in the US and reposition them almost literally for international services by putting much more power in the sky, which in fact, I think that his first satellite was roughly three times as powerful as the state-of-the-art most recently launched Intelsat satellite. So the earth stations, instead of being 30 meters were sub six meters and down to three meters and, and below which meant that you couldn't, you didn't, well, first of all, they weren't millions of dollars in cost and you didn't have to have a huge amount of space in order to, to be able to even house them at a teleport, but you could put them on the roof of a building. You could put them directly on the, on the roof of businesses. So you had suddenly enterprise communications and broadcasters. So they could put them at their studios without having to backhaul 
through the whatever country you're in to these giant gateway earth stations operated by the Intelsat signatory owners um, in, in the US context. So this was revolutionary. Anyway, so the big issue though, and what I'm proud about was I was responsible for market access. Yeah. Because in those days, getting uh, permitted to provide services in countries around the world was a difficult proposition because the participant from each of those countries or most countries in the Intelsat organization was a government owned and operated entity, a, a telco, in typical case, uh, a PTT. Um, so the government had a, had a vested re a reason to protect uh, from competition their own participant in the very thing that they were also the regulator of. And so convincing yeah. them, convincing governments that it was in not just the interests of the world or of Pan Amsat, but in the interests of them, their government, and most importantly, their people and their businesses to get the most cost-effective, efficient services was my job. And I, of course, it wasn't alone in any sense of this, but it was a uphill struggle for quite a long time um, and very exciting because if you can't enter a market, you can't provide services. So it's like the sort of the first stage yeah. um, in the process. And so I kind of viewed, and I, you know, uh, with tears in my eyes, I kind of viewed um, Renee more so than myself, although I was, I was sort of by his side as Don Quixote and, <laughs> you know, um, with windmills. Um, and we, but we succeeded. We succeeded in uh, it's you know step by step, country by country, and there's a big backstory there. We'll go into some other time, but so that was my my proudest achievement. And then going on, um, the, my second proudest achievement was I I I um, was describing how I went to work for Lockheed Martin. I worked yeah. for Lockheed. Decided they wanted to um, when the Cold War came to an end, they realized that their meal ticket as a purveyor of weapons of mass destruction to, to fight communism and, and, and other social ills um, might be coming to an end, they decided to do a pivot and embrace commercial opportunities. And one of those opportunities was creating their own private global satellite system, which was a really interesting joint venture called Lockheed Martin Intersputnik. It was a JV between Lockheed and the Soviet era counterpart to Intelsat, which was Intersputnik. Yeah. Um, and anyway, so some years later, when 9-11 took place, Lockheed and their, their um, fellow travelers realized that the Cold War was definitely over, but that there was a new war that was going to last a lot longer, potentially, um, which was the war on terror. And so they decided that they could pivot back bigger, bolder, and better um, <laughs> to provide additional services against an unseen ubiquitous enemy um, and that they could, they could give up something that I don't think they really had their heart in in the first place, which were these commercial operations, which became a great opportunity. And that my proudest moment was, able to, was being able to go back to Lockheed with private equity money and buy LMI from them and create 
the company ABS. Wow. It sounds as though, and dare I say it, there's almost a little bit of a sort of Forrest Gump. You, you kind of found yourself in the right place at the right time to see so much change in, in the industry and, and not just see the change, but, you know, have an opportunity to, to influence it as well. So uh, uh, really, really interesting there. But I think we've, we've kind of delved into the, the past enough now. Um, yeah. Let's kind of move move to the present, move to the future. Um, and I know Annie's got a couple of questions certainly around that for you. Yes, absolutely. So I believe by the time this episode comes out, um, I know that you guys have got an exciting announcement coming from, from Gapsat. Um, it would be great if you could tell us a little bit more about the acquisition of QBX and, and what it means for you guys. Sure, sure. Well, before I talk about the acquisition, if I just have a, take a moment here to just give a kind of the, the background. Um, Gapset is a company uh, which is in the business of leasing in-orbit geostationary communication satellites to satellite operators. So we're kind of a carrier's carrier, operator's operator. Um, and we, what we do is we, we lease them typically for a limited period of time to fill in a business gap, um, hence the name GAPSAT. And um, Andrew started out the, the, uh, the, his introduction, thank you, to me mentioning that we, we focus on the failures in the industry whether there's a launch failure or an in-orbit failure, and the operator needs to get a replacement satellite, um, and generally as quickly as possible, um, until they can build and launch a replacement satellite for the long term, customized. But that can take anywhere from two to three to, to more years. And if there's a failure and, the, and customers are waiting for the service to be turned on within the you know minute, if not the hour, the um, the reality is that then unless you get another satellite that's already in space and available and operates on the right frequencies with basically the right power levels and the right coverage, you can't use an existing um, uh, recycled satellite. Um, so that it is true that, that that is a part of our business and was one of the motivations for starting it. But it turns out that the biggest part of our business has been success stories where operators have not had a failure with their existing satellites, um, although there are, there are numbers of those, um, but rather where they have more demand than they have product with it. They have more demand than they have uh, available uh, transponders and capacity. So what we do there is becomes even more complicated because typically you have a satellite that's operating, you have a, a universe or networks of antennas on the ground that are looking at that satellite. And two kinds of uh, opportunities arise. One, existing customers for uh, services on that satellite want more capacity. Uh, they want to expand their, their, if they're a broadcaster, if they've got a, a, a DTH platform, they want to put more channels on, they want to go from uh, standard definition to high definition to 4K, and they need more capacity. Um, and the objective of all satellite operators is to sell as much of the capacity as they can so that they can, you know, they can, uh, they can uh, get as much of a, of a competitive return on their investment, which is great. But at some point, they, they can overcommit themselves and they reach a point where they can't satisfy that growing demand. 
um, or new customers come along and they want to be uh, part of that, that network or that hotbird um, position. And, and that's what you're building your, your, uh, your service towards. But as a practical matter, um, you don't have anything to sell them. So that's where GAPSAT comes in. Who are you going to call? GAPSAT. And what we do is we find a satellite that doesn't operate in the precise frequencies, but it operates on adjacent frequencies because expanding by putting more of the same exact um, transmissions would just cause interference. So that's not going to work. You have to find adjacent um, frequencies that the existing antennas can also communicate with. Um, I mean, you don't have to, you can, you can put new antennas in, but that's the easiest, most uh, uh, efficient way of doing it. Um, and you say, so there's a lot of work to do to, to match it up. And sometimes it's impossible to find a perfect match, let alone even one that works, let alone one that's available. Because remember most of the satellites that are operational are operational and not available for lease to some other operator, particularly if it's a competitor. So what we do is, is we go out and we typically, um, we're kind of the Switzerland of the satellite industry. We don't have our own services that we're providing in competition with these operators. So we're able to share information there. We're sort of a trusted partner. Um, and we know where the bodies are buried. We know who's got um, fallow capacity on their fleets that if properly groomed can make available an entire satellite that can then be moved to the orbital location of our client that wants to lease the satellite to use it until they can build and launch their own satellite or to use it until um, as a way of initiating service at a new orbital location um, and test the market waters, if, if, if you will. Um, so we've been doing that for a long time. What we found though is that, and this is the second way into the QBX transaction, um, that sometimes um, operators, particularly new operators, but even existing operators that have satellites and sometimes even large uh, fleets of satellites um, want to expand their operation or to initiate in the case of, uh, initiate services in the case of a new satellite operator. And the, one of the biggest problems that we have encountered uh, as an industry is the dearth of available orbital slots and associated frequencies that are available in a relatively unfettered, uh, non-conflicting um, um, fashion to be used to provide services. There's a, there are quite a few satellites up there. I mean, we're, we're talking somewhere in the 400 geostationary uh, satellites operating across 360 orbital you know, degree slots um, with a minimum spacing typically of at least two degrees. So you do the math and you realize that it's, it's challenging to even get the 400 satellites into, you know, two degree spacing. Um, we have the ability to do a couple of things. We, the industry, um, one is of course, operating different frequencies. There's no conflict there. If you operate in C band, I operate in KU band. The other operator does it in KA band and so forth. That's fine, but we but over the last you know 50 years, um, though many of the frequencies have become saturated, and the probability of of conflict of of um, of interference, which is not good to the existing operator and it's not good for the new operator that wants to start, 
um, is, is more than problematic. And it, that's a problem that's increasing. Um, so there are, uh, one of the things that we've discovered is that a lot of the, the perspective um, interference constraints that have to be avoided are not actual operational satellites. Even though there's a lot of satellites, it's filings that have priority, ITU filings. Um, and there's a kind of like almost a game that takes place where existing operators in order to protect their potential for future growth and also protect the, the sort of like elbow uh, protection in, in their existing operations, um, they routinely do large numbers of filings in multiple, if not all frequency bands at orbital locations around the world as a way of having the, uh, what is viewed as sort of preferential access um, to the use of the spectrum at those orbital locations. Um, so we have been called upon as a purveyor of in-orbit satellites for satellite operators to on occasion when, they have, when those operators have had problems with the orbital location that they were thinking of using, or orbital location that they may have done their own filing for, or one that they you know, are thinking about making a filing for. The problem is that they're, they have to, they typically are at the back of the line. And like any line, it means the people, the companies, uh, the administration of the governments actually, that are in the front of the line have the highest priorities and typically are in the best position to thwart the ambitions of the new operators or the new operations um, located adjacent to those filed locations at the ITU. And we are occasionally been asked by our clients that are looking for a satellite, could we help them to find an orbital filing? And that's not a business that we've ever been in, um, but it's one that we are very familiar with. Um, and even going back to my days working for, uh, for Lockheed, the joint venture with, with Lockheed Martin Intersputnik, the, what Intersputnik brought to the, to the JV was it brought 15 orbital filings that it had, had uh, made some years before. Lockheed had the technology and the money to build and launch satellites, but they had no place to put them. So Intersputnik had filings and together they had filings, money, rockets, and the ability to build the satellites and the ground systems. So what we realized is that we're no Lockheed and we're certainly not into Sputnik, but what we could do is we could help them to identify administrations and, and satellite companies that do have high priority filings. And then after doing this for several years um, as a additional service for our clients, um, we were approached by QBX, which is an Isle of Man company. Um, and they were looking to find a way of developing a series of orbital filings and a patent that they had developed for uh, aeronautical maritime and other mobile uh, broadband services that they were focused on using these filings for and the, the patent. Um, they, they asked us if we could help them to get into business. And they've been working on this for a number of years. And we took a look at it and, and, and we realized that um, this was a major kind of project because to build 
in this case, it's, it's, uh, it's filings that, that provide global coverage. Um, and we can talk about kind of the, the, the idea behind this in a moment, but, but to give you the gist of, of the acquisition and, and what this conversation is really uh, about, um, we realized that this was going to require kind of a fresh start. Um, and, and more importantly, QBX realized that, that they had spent, I think about four or five years trying to develop, maybe six years, trying to develop their, uh, their program their, their business program. Um, and they realized that what they wanted to do was to find a group of eager, energetic um, new space people that would help to turn this, this idea that they had developed really well into a reality um, by bringing the technology as well as the financial um, power in order to, to, to make, that, make that so. So the transaction that we're going to announce tomorrow, in fact, um, or for those of you that are watching this in the future, it's an announcement we made yesterday or whatever. The, um, the reality is that we, GAPSAT, um, have purchased the company from the founders of QBX. And we are now stepping kind of into their shoes um, and most importantly into the priorities with their filings have taken on um, the patina, if you will, um, over the years that they've been working on this project and are in the, in the earliest days of turning around and going out to the market to identify um, companies, um, both as strategic partners and as financial partners to develop these resources. Ta-da. Well, I, I think that's possibly one of the most comprehensive answers we, we've ever had from the reasons behind it and, and the benefit that it's going to give. And I think, you know, what, what was really interesting, I think, from all of that, as you say, I, I kind of focused on, I suppose, kind of gaps at the reaction to failures. Um, but actually, it's the, the reaction that you can have to your customers successes that that's kind of more important for you guys and i think you know the protection of those filings you know again well they've been successful in getting the filings in the first place let's make sure that they're successful in keeping them and utilizing them and protecting them when, when they have them so um look yeah really appreciate the the in-depth answer there and yeah please and just 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 to interject there because you're right you did mention that as well and i think um it would be worth just spending a moment and i'll try to be brief um, which is the protection of, of filings, um, which we refer to as BIUing, bringing into use. The ITU rules um, require that a filing that is made, it's, and filings are made by countries, administrations that are members of the ITU, um, but usually on behalf of private companies which are registered in those countries. Um, the rule is that you have to bring into use, you have to actually have a satellite located at the orbital location that you filed for, operating in the frequencies for which you have filed um, within a period of seven years in the case of fixed satellite services and mobile. And I think it's eight years in the case of BSS, broadcast satellite services. Um, and everyone thought, and you, I'm sorry, you have to bring them into use for a minimum of 90 days under the current rules. And that's yeah. evolved over a period of a better part of a decade. 
Um, in the oldest days, you just had to have, we called it the hunk o junk rule, which was that you had to have a satellite <laughs> that could just barely looked like a satellite, kind of coughed like a satellite and had some kind of frequencies that you could, you could vaguely detect um, up there in the sky. And you only had to have one set of frequencies you could bring in with one transponder in KU band, you could bring in all of the KU band spectrum, one transponder yeah. in KU band and so forth. Um, that's, that's gone through a whole lot of refinement. Now you actually have to, there's an administrative due diligence process. You have to demonstrate that you in fact got a satellite that's capable of, of bringing into use each and every one of those frequencies across the board in order to claim it. But the bottom line is that um, um, everyone thought that seven years between the time that you file and the time that you get a satellite there is more than enough time. Because even well, if satellites take two or three years to build, and there are sometimes there are you know, hiccups and, and supply chain problems as we've seen in the last couple of years, allegedly, um, and rocket failures that have caused delays in, in launch. Um, seven years, it turns out, for many operators, is not nearly long enough, particularly for startups who have yeah. to raise potentially hundreds of millions of dollars in capital and they have to hire experts and they have to do a business plan and so on and so forth. There are, like everything in our lives, great plans are, are made and then it takes a lot longer to implement. <laughs> so sometimes, um, a, a company actually has gotten to the point where they've, they've spent um, tens of millions of dollars or even a hundred plus million dollars and they're not ready for launch in the time frame, that seven year time frame. And it would be grossly unfair to say, well, you know, you had your chance, just tell the investors, sorry, we, we just didn't win, we didn't finish the race. So yeah. in those cases, um, we come along um, and we help operators to be able to use a temporary satellite. I was describing earlier, what we do is we, uh, we're a matchmaker finding satellites for operational commercial services. We do the same thing for satellites. The only difference is that instead of, instead of leasing a satellite for one to three years for commercial services, you only need to lease it for three months. 90 days, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Well, look, um... We've, we've looked at the past, we've, we've been in here in the present. Um, let's look a little bit towards the future. And I suppose that this brings us to um, our topic that matters for the day. Um, and, you know, that, that's really looking at the future of GEO. Um, you know, over the last few years, we've seen a huge amount of growth in, in operators launching NGSO constellations, um, especially for, you know, communications and, and for, for broadband, you know, certainly with the likes of Starlink and OneWeb, OneWeb, OneWeb sort of close to becoming fully operational um, and further constellations from the likes of Telesat and a number of other players sort of coming around soon. It seems as though Geo kind of gets a little bit overlooked, especially in conversations around the industry's future. You know, given yours and Gapsat's line of business, I'm pretty sure that's something that, that you disagree with. Um, so kind of keen to learn from you, you know, where do you see Geo's place in the future of our industry? And kind of how and why is Geo still gonna be relevant? Okay, so I would say that there are three parts to that, to the answer to your question. The first part is that, um, Non-geostationary satellites are the, the 
kind of the hot item um, of the day, the week, the month, and the last several years, and probably for years to come. So there's no question that it's 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 on everyone's minds. Um, yeah. It's sexy. Um, it, I think it's responsible in the best of senses for generating an enormous amount of interest in our industry writ large. Um, there's no question that one person has almost single-handedly um, rekindled the excitement for people that are considering a, a career in space and in communications and satellites and so forth, which is Elon Musk and, and what he's done with both his launcher system um, with SpaceX and with Starlink. Um, and then there's all the other satellite operators, both in, in Leo and Mio, that are that are also racing in the same direction, um, but without maybe as much pizzazz, uh, at least so far. Yeah. Let's let's wait and see how this thing plays out. Um, so that's great. And by the way, bringing in new blood, no, new interest, and and becoming a household discussion topic um, is something that's you know is really refreshing. So. I think it's one of the best things that's happened in well over a decade to our industry. And I think it, it portends a really bright future. I think that um, a lot of that is hype though. Um, and the hype has had positive effect, but it's also misled a lot of people as to what the future is gonna look like. I think that, and again, I'm not wedded to any particular technology. I am not an engineer that somehow doesn't want anyone to invent a new, better mousetrap. I, I welcome it. Um, and I think GAPSAT and, and, and most people do as well, but I think if you're realistic and we could debate this and, and I'm actually happy to, but just to put it on the table, um, the truth is that for a substantial number of services, geostationary provision, geostationary infrastructure is at least, has been today and for the at least foreseeable future, is a much more cost-effective way of delivering bits. Now, what is, what is LEO specifically, and MEO to a slightly lesser degree, but, but also, what is it really good for? Absolutely, no. What is it? <laughs> it's good for low latency, no question about it. And it's great for covering areas that are badly covered from the equator, from geostationary, which is basically the most uh, northern and southernmost latitudes, um, and especially the poles, yeah. because you can barely see if the look angles are terrible from geo. Okay. But by the way, you can provide services almost all the way up there, but clearly you cannot get all the way. And Antarctica is a real difficult situation. So yeah, it's great. If you need to have, you know, millisecond delay, I mean, like double, small double digit um, millisecond delay for your services. If you're a high speed trader on the stock market, there's yeah. no question that you want to be doing something that's the shortest fiber length and or the shortest um, hop to a satellite. And that's going to be Leo followed by Mio. But for, I don't want to say 90%, 95%, a significant percentage of all the communication that is carried by satellite or will be carried by satellite, that is not really the, the principal driver. Um, so therefore, and, and, but it, it is important. It's important geographically, as I say, and, and for certain kinds of services, and maybe for you know supercomputers that need that 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 can't have those delays. But for the rest of us, for most things, the truth of the matter is, uh, 
it's a non-issue. And then there's the question of what's the most cost-effective way, cost way of delivering services. So forget, I don't need low latency, but I want low cost, okay? So there's two parts to the, to the equation of, of cost and more importantly, price, because no matter what the costs are, I, I don't care about that as a user. I want to know what I'm paying. Uh, and there is sometimes yeah. a big gap there. Um, the reality is that A, the antennas are much more expensive because they have to track, okay? No matter whether you're, you're tracking really fast or you're tracking slow, you got it yeah. moving. And whether you're doing it with physical tracking, mechanical steering, or whether you're doing it with uh, phased array or some other technology, um, it's expensive. Um, and it, it could be, you know, as much as an order of magnitude more expensive, depending on the nature of the antenna. Okay. And then you have the question of the cost of the, of the infrastructure itself. In, and I'm going to do a segue here in a moment to the second of the points, which is um, the assets that we just acquired and how they fit into this story. Um, and is sort of my pitch, but, but generically speaking here, um, with three satellites, and that's what we have, we, we've got three orbital locations um, that we've just acquired. The, with three satellites, you can cover the entire world with the exception of the poles. You can cover the entire world with overlapping coverage if you place them almost equidistant apart. Because um, remember, a geostationary satellite covers a little less than, everyone talks about a third of the Earth, but it covers a little less than half of the Earth. So if you have three of them, you, 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 cover, you can cover the entire Earth with, uh, with most locations capable of seeing east or west two satellites, which is great because it gives you diversity of routing and it gives you, you know, issues of, uh, if you have issues of look angles and or blockage of buildings, mountains, trees, et cetera, it's great to be able to go the other direction. Um, whereas to do the same thing, to get global coverage in LEO, you need a lot of satellites because they're close to the earth. And it's true, they, they're nice, you know, high powered things that have very little latency, but you need a swarm of them. You need thousands of them. Maybe you don't need thousands. Again, if you move your altitude a little bit higher, like a flashlight being pulled back from a globe, um, yeah. you can you know, see more and more of the earth. But the bottom line is that the infrastructure costs of A, building, B, launching, C, controlling and D, replacing all of those satellites, not to mention the negative externalities of the costs of potential pollution in space and the potential for um, unintended consequences, such as collisions in space, goes up dramatically, which you don't have in, in a geostationary situation. So, um, and again, I think that I'm excited about becoming a customer someday using a Leo. Um, I will say that, that there are probably lots of opportunities. From what I can tell though, between the additional costs from a provider perspective, an owner of a satellite fleet uh, for building and launching and operating a, uh, a non-geo system versus a geo, the, the, the costs are orders of magnitude greater um, for relatively less capacity. So if you're looking at you know, broadband, really very high throughput satellites, you're going to be able to get a, pack a whole lot more stuff typically on a geostationary satellite than you can on relatively smaller, more modest 
uh, lower Earth orbit satellites. Um, and the, the ground equipment, again, it, this, the, with um, economies of scale, and the production of this equipment, like, like um, the production of mobile phones, someday the actual costs may come down for the production of, of tracking antennas. They will probably never be as inexpensive as a geo because it, it, the, the, the Leo or Mio antenna um, would be able to communicate to a geo. In fact, they're talking about being able to do with a single antenna communicate um, to both uh, constellations as well as the geo. And how will you, how will you divvy up um, the, the uh, communication links? Which ones will you put over the geo? Which ones will you put over the Leo? Um, yeah. So you most cost effectively can can uh, can use that that spectrum uh, and that infrastructure. Um, when and then the third thing I was going to talk about, which I alluded to a moment ago, which is the QBX acquisition. What what we really were attracted by um, is that the another hot button. It may be hyped, but I don't think it's hyped in the same way. Um, and I think it's it's a real re communications requirement is communications where there is no terrestrial alternative. And yeah. the, the, you know, realistically, the, there are three areas where that takes place. One is aeronautical services, because when you're up there, there's no wires. The other is maritime um, mobile services. When you're out in the oceans, there's no, uh, there's no cables. Um, and certain land mobile and, and, and even fixed land applications in remote rural kinds of, of communities. And which is an area, by the way, along with um, multicast broadcast, are optimal um, services applications for yeah. satellites generally. Okay, what we were really excited about about the QBX um, transaction is that when they came to us, we saw that they had developed. Uh, first of all, they had done a lot of research, and they had done filings for three orbital locations, one over the Indian Ocean region, one over the Pacific Ocean region, and one over the Indian Ocean region. But more importantly, in the middle of each of those ocean regions. Now, in the old, old days of satellite communication, satellites were used primarily for voice communication, telephone services, and to a lesser degree for some uh, uh, telex, um, telegram yeah. service. Um, and they were placed, the first ones, the first international ones, the Intelsat system, were sort of mid-ocean satellites to connect the continents, okay? And this is before there were even fiber optic cables, they were just copper cables under the sea. And so they, they did two things. One, they increased the amount of capacity by putting these satellites up versus what was available subsea cable. And two, they were able to provide restoration to all of the subsea cables. Well. We don't really use satellites, or I should say, the world does not use satellites typically, for the most part, to provide voice communications. Um, so the uh, because we do have a, a, a huge amount of, of subsea uh, fiber optic cables. Yeah. So um, we don't have a capacity crunch there yet, and the so so what was once the ideal location for this mid ocean has sort of shifted over to focused satellites that were over land masses and less over water masses. Because where's the action? Well, the action was where people are communicating, where broadcasters can be distributing their signals and so forth, where people are watching. 
Um, but the reality is when you're talking about aeronautical and maritime, you're talking about not where people are living and, and acting, but where they're, they're traveling from too. And then suddenly something which was a, uh, it was a quaint idea from the old days has become a hot button idea for the current days and increasingly so. Um, and the amount of capacity that's required is astronomical and growing. And as we know, in every, in every part of our lives, the amount of broadband capacity we need access to in our daily lives is increasing. And the same is true for airlines and for, for ships um, at sea. So what we were really attracted by was uh, two things. One, these are really mid-ocean, roughly 120 degrees apart. And so if you think about it, the world 360 degrees, 120 degrees apart, you get three satellites, you almost equidistant, you cover the world yeah. in an optimized fashion. And if you do it in the center of the ocean, um, you get the ideal coverage for both of those services, while also being able to provide services to the land masses that are on the edges of those waters. In the case of the Indian Ocean, um, our satellite is, is sort of right at the tip of the equator, obviously, the, the tip of India. So you get coverage east-west from, you know, from the edge of Asia to the edge of Europe, all you get coverage of Africa, the Middle East, and all the way to Australia. And you cover all of that ocean region as well, and all of the, the, the northern um, routes typically for international um, uh, flights. And you cover the Mediterranean, so you have all of the traffic that's in the, both the Indian Ocean region. Mm. So, you know, you have all of that. And so forth, the same is true in the Pacific. Obviously, there is, the Pacific, you have what you don't have as much of is the landmass because it's mostly water, but you do have the Pacific Islands and, and that's important. And you have the edges where you cover North America and you cover the Pacific Rim. And then in the Atlantic, you have South America, Africa covered as well as Western, um, Western Europe and, um, and uh, North America, uh, CONUS basically. Um, so you get kind of the best of both worlds. So you're not limited to only providing mobile aeronautical mo uh, maritime services, but it's sort of optimized in, in just, you know, just looking at it. Um, and what we did is, we didn't do, I'm sorry, what, what um, the developers of this company, uh, QBX did, was they did filings in KA band, in Q and V and E and W. So there's a whole lot of filings that people have and there was no reason to, to try to replicate it. And there would be obvious conflicts in C band and KU band in, in these areas. But there, there are very, well, there are fewer, shall we say, uh, QV band filings and there are much fewer um, EW. These are higher frequencies, Yeah, you know. Um, so staking out, the growth area, looking toward the future. And in KA band, they have terrific priority relative to other filings that are also in the sort of general arc. Um, uh, so as to be able to develop these, uh, these slots. And we thought, this is great because we have people knocking on our door all the time saying, you know, if only we had um, the access to the use of spectrum in these kinds of locations and but you know, we'd have to get in the back of the line and what, what are the probabilities that we'd be able to successfully coordinate with the incumbents and with the, uh, the filers that are ahead of us in the process that have played the game more successfully before we, we entered it. 
So yeah. we thought, okay, this is, this, is a, this is a great way of addressing that and addressing requirements that are growing as a practical reality, as opposed to, and if we just go back, I don't know, a decade and a half, when Boeing came up with their connection you know, program, which yeah. was great, but it, it, it was like a decade too soon for the industry to be willing to spend the money to put in all the infrastructure and all the planes to have the antennas and so on and so forth. So yeah. we're hoping that we're at the right place at the right time and mm -hmm. talking to the world, we're looking for partners. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I think what's, uh, you know, what was really interesting there, and I think something that, that tends to get a little bit missed, you know, in, in the conversation is that it's all about use case. And, and you know, I think Geo is going to have a place just as, as Leo and Mio are going to have a place. Um, and we shouldn't be having this conversation, you know, as separate things. It's all about having it in concert and, and kind of understanding, you know, best use case for the best system. Um, and we've all got a place here in, in the industry. Um, so, look, uh, Greg, really appreciate that. And look, we, we touched on, you know, the past, the present, the future. But I think now it's time just to take a little bit of time to learn about the man behind the business. Um, the man, so, the myth, the legend. <laughs> exactly. So I'm going to pass <laughs> over to Annie. And uh, yeah, I'm going to learn a little bit more about you, I hope. Okay. Yes, no, really interesting insights, Greg. And um, yeah, I think, Geo, there's, there's always been that need and there always will be. Um, but yeah, great to hear your thoughts on that. Um, so to dive into you a little bit more, um, I'm sure our listeners would, would love to learn a bit more about you. And um, yes, we're, we're keen to understand what your perfect weekend would be like. Oh, my God. <laughs> this isn't a satellite question. Uh, totally unprepared. My perfect weekend. Well, I'll tell you, my perfect weekend. I don't know. I mean, are you asking me where I would like to go? I'll tell you the truth. Um, I am I am a beach bum. I may not look it because <laughs> ah, I don't have that surfer hair, but um, I'm a beach bum. I've spent, a, I'd say, a disproportionate amount of my life um, at or near or on the water. And uh, I do a lot of, of water sport type activities. But to be honest with you, the thing I like the most and, and my perfect weekend, pretty much anywhere in the world this works and there are places where it's more challenging, um, is to get out on the water and to go snorkeling. Um, I'm an ocean swimmer. I, in fact, I just moved two months ago from a fishing village at the beach um, in a relatively rural area, nestled in the mountains in, this, in these little coves in Hong Kong um, uh, to the south of France. And I used to go swimming, I don't know, four, five days a week. And I typically, I, I, I swim with a mask and snorkel, snorkel and fins because the truth is swimming is wonderful, but it can be tedious and slow. So I need a little bit of speed. The fins help with that, flippers. Um, the mask has my prescription lenses so I can see. I also put a GoPro so I can take pictures if there's anything interesting to watch. And the snorkel means I don't have to go like this every couple of you know, seconds so that I keep alive. I can look down and I can look where I'm going. I can look around. Um, so I think my perfect weekend mm. is going to a beach community here in, um, in the south of France. I've um, it's winter time, so it's not ideal for uh, for doing this. But um, uh, we 
go swimming in the Mediterranean. And I was really delighted to find that even though the Mediterranean can be brisk when the mistral is blowing, um, I spent a good deal of uh, time this past summer vacationing before we moved here in Greece and in uh, along the coast here in France, um, snorkeling. And it was amazingly clear, beautiful, um, and just uh, a different experience kind of. Sounds uh, amazing. Yeah. So that, a bottle mm. of wine, my wife, <laughs> my children, and then to cap the evening off, a glass of good old single malt whiskey. Lovely. Couldn't, couldn't have said it better myself. That sounds absolutely amazing. Um, yeah, no, so I'm going to pass over to Bowley now to just sort of run through the quick fire round. So, um, yes, be prepared to, to think on your feet. Okay. Yeah, thanks, Annie. <laughs> yeah, so look, we, we move into what I think is a lot of people's uh, favourite section of the podcast, the quick fire round. Um, as Annie mentioned, think on your feet. Don't think too hard about the answers. We want the first thing that pops into your head. Uh, so we've, ten, we've got 10 questions to go through. We're going to go through them as quick as we can. So let's start off. And uh, look, you've answered this one already, but hey, I'm going to start with it. Beach holiday or city break? Ah, uh, listen, I'm a city yeah. student. Um, I, I uh, spent uh, some of the best days of my life living in cities, living in, I started living in New York. I lived in Washington, D.C., moved to London, moved to Hong Kong. I lived in Los Angeles. I love the city. I love theater. I love the excitement, the energy. I even lived in places that my parents told me were too dangerous to live in in cities. But the truth is, I'm definitely, I'd rather be at the beach. Thought so. Uh, I know you've only recently moved there, so uh, maybe you haven't experienced enough of it to be able to answer this one, but Hong Kong or France? Um, that's a good question. I would say that I have not been here in France long enough to give it a fair shot. Um, I moved to, to uh, Hong Kong when um, I started the ABS experience. Um, and to be honest with you, um, we went, I had, a, my son was literally one years old. He was on his first birthday. We got on a plane in Los Angeles and he spent his first birthday on the airplane. And you would think, oh, what a horrible way to spend your birthday. It was the greatest day of his life. He got to <laughs> suckle at his mother's, you know what? And he was, had the attention of everyone on the plane because he was the cutest little guy in the whole world. And he got to kind of hold on to the, to the, you know, the seats down the aisle so we could walk without falling over. Um, we went there thinking we'd be there for like about five years. Um, we ended up staying for 16 years. Wow. And as I say, we, we just moved, but, um, and my son is now just turned 17 years old. How time flies. The, um, the truth is that I found that Hong Kong was terrific because it was truly a big city, you know, first world experience. Um, yeah. And to be honest with you, things went south in the last couple of years, A, with the, the response um, to the pandemic and um, the lockdowns and the other kinds of, of constraints that were imposed largely from uh, the North um, and the, the unfortunate turn of events in terms of the politics. But as a lifestyle, it was the best of almost, I don't wanna say all possible worlds. We lived 
I, I described earlier in a, in a 10th generation Chinese fishing village that was as rural and, and down to earth and, and just uh, wonderfully relaxing with two beaches and mountains all around us. Um, but we were 21 minutes door to door from my house to parking my car in the center of, of what we call central downtown Hong Kong, the yeah. Hong Kong that everyone knows with those skyscrapers and everything. So we, and it was literally door to door, one hour to get to the airport, to fly almost anywhere in the world on a great world-class airlines, Cafe Pacific. And to be honest with you, it was great until they stopped flying anywhere and it became impossible <laughs> to, to do, to go anywhere and so forth. Um, well, so it sounds like you had the, you got the best of both worlds in, we did uh, the best in, in Hong world. Kong. And, and it was, you know, it, it was easy to connect. It's a very efficient place. Um, it's, a, it's a service economy. France, in contrast, is difficult. It's bureaucratic. There are all kinds of rules that I have not learned how to navigate yet. <laughs> and I'm sure that they're becoming, you know, um, less opaque as I, as I go through the process. Um, I have a great handicap or a terrible handicap, which I'm, as I, I mentioned when we, before we started this, uh, this recording, which is I don't speak French. And the French can be very unforgiving to a non-French speaker, much more so than the, the, the Chinese, the Hong Kong Chinese never were upset by the fact that I didn't speak Chinese. Um, and throughout yeah. Asia, you go to Japan, they don't expect you to speak Japanese. They love if you can say a few words. And the same is true in Thailand and Indonesia and so forth. In Europe, most countries understand you're a dumb American and you, you, know, you barely speak English. <laughs> but the French, they, that's not acceptable. However, I am studying and someday I'll be able to order a meal <laughs> and maybe have a conversation. Uh, I always think, I, I've always noticed in France, it's one of those places where as long as you make the effort, they appreciate it. It's when you don't make the effort that's when they don't like it. <laughs> so moving on to our next question, plane yeah. travel or train travel? I love um, plane travel. I, okay, I, 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 of course, everyone who likes seeing stuff loves train travel because you get to see the countryside. Um, and I'm hoping to do a whole bunch of Eurorail kind of travel, uh, the Tejave, uh, here in France is, is great high speed through the countryside. And I've taken this trains a couple of times to Paris already. Um, but I love the fact that you can transpose from one place, transport, I should say, from one place to another in like almost an instant. And yeah. if, you know the, if you do it the right way, then that's business class or better. <laughs> if, you can, if you can hop on somewhere in, you know, in, in an airport somewhere, where still in business class, a couple of hours later, wake up in another place. I like, like you say, people who like to look at stuff, yeah, be on a train. But if you want to do it in style and quickly, I, I get it with the plane travel. Um, so the next question, big night out or quiet night in? Quiet night in. Perfect. Sweet or savory? Mm, that's a tough one. I, I'm a, I have a sweet tooth. Um, I'm a chocoholic, but I love savory. So... I want my cake and eat it too. <laughs> we'll let you have both on that one. Um, what's your go-to karaoke song? Oh, man, you are digging <laughs> deep. 
My go-to karaoke song is House of the Rising Sun. There is the house. <laughs> Absolute classic. I'm still, I say this every time, I'm still waiting for the person to say my way. It's going to happen sometime. And the amount of times you hear it as you walk past a bar, it's got to be someone's go-to song, but we're yet to have it yet. Um, next question. What would be your death row meal? If you could only have one meal, one more meal, what would it be? Well, um, I have a caveat. It would have to not just be a meal. It would have to be a very specific meal prepared by a very specific restaurant with a very specific uh, version of, of their, their we'll menu. We'll allow it. Um, I, and I realized that Typically in, in prison, that's probably not available and not possible. <laughs> say, sure, in your dreams, but it would be a margarita um, pizza with garlic from VT's on 110th Street, 111th Street, and Amsterdam Avenue in New York City. Uh, that sounds like I'm going to have to try that. Um, early bird or night owl? Night owl, baby. <laughs> and uh, uh, cinema or film on the sofa? Mm. I was a film person when I started out in my adulthood, and I still am a cinephile. Um, but I love a night of laying on my sofa with my giant screen, screen 4K <laughs> television. Nice. And we're now down to our last question. And it's one that we like to ask people in the satellite and space industry. Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? Oh, my God. <laughs> well, um, wow. I think that <laughs> uh, my first Come on, is, first answer. <laughs> my first thought is lesser of two evils. Um, my answer is Mark Dankberg. A good answer. We'll, we'll take that. We'll take that. <laughs> so there we go. That's the end of the quick fire round. And we're now down to our last question of the podcast. Um, so Annie, take it away. Yes. So our last question, and it will always be the same. Um, what one piece of advice would you give to someone entering the industry? Mm. I would say, um, and this pertains, I think, to anyone entering any kind of uh, a, a life, a career, a profession, is to do it from the heart, to choose a, a, um, an objective, uh, a, a game plan, if you will, um, that you're really committed to, that you care deeply about, that is genuinely meaningful to you, to achieving what you consider to be important, your values in life um, that will sustain and feed you through what will be difficult times as well as joyous times, to give you something to look back at um, that you, you, you set a course and probably went in a lot of different directions and never got to where you had planned originally and that's a good thing, but that throughout the process you have a dream um, that you really, you care about, that you're willing to devote yourself to. And when you start out in life, I think you have more energy than you will ever have. We'll never be younger 
stronger, smarter, faster, or really capable of being more disciplined or, or, or focusing more energy than we do today. And it's in a sense, unfortunately, maybe slowly downhill from here in many of those respects. Um, so you wanna start out with the right trajectory and, and like, a, like a rocket going into outer space, if you don't have the right trajectory, you're guaranteed not to go anywhere near where you're intending to go. Um, I think that, that um, it's okay to, to go for the, the quick buck, but only for a limited time and only a limited amount of your energy, because the truth is that will come later um, if, you, if you do, the, do what you believe in and you, you're committed to, um, to the degree that you, you care about material things. Um, and if you're not, then all of the easier. Um, I think that you need to have something that sustains you and that, that gives you the kind of positive feedback that makes you want to get up in the morning and be happy when you look in the mirror. And when your kids say to you, what did you do today? And what's it all about, Alfie? You have an answer that, that you're comfortable with and, and don't have to bullshit in order to make it sound like it was, make yourself sound more heroic than you really are. Because just doing what you believe in and what, what you would like to see happen to make the world a better place is more than enough. I mean, I think that's, that's great advice for life and, and not just for, for your career or for this industry. Um, so look, Greg, we, we're at the end now. Um, just want to say thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. It was great to hear your thoughts, your insight in the industry, learn a little bit more about you, um, what kind of drives you and, and what pushes you on. Um, so just want to, again, thank you very much for, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure having you. Yeah, thank you very much, Greg. And guys, uh, may I say, I should say, Annie, Andrew, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here and to share this with you. Till next time, aloha. Thank you for listening to the show. If you enjoyed it, please do subscribe and give us a rating. It really helps these stories to be found and enjoyed by more people. For more information about NUCO, we can be found at www.nuco-group.com. That's N-E-U-C-O-group.com.